Well, this is a fascinating chapter, isn't it? Genesis chapter 5. One of the most important things that the Genesis account explains is the entrance of sin into the world. And as a direct result of that, <coughs> the entrance of death into the good world that God had made. I mean, it, it, it's very, it doesn't fit, does it, with that beautiful creation we've read about in the first chapters of Genesis. Death. Why is death in the world? Well, these chapters explain it. They explain why we now live in a world where, where everything, actually every living thing, is subject, isn't it, to death and to decay. Now, I don't think that plant life is actually living in quite the same way that animal life is. Can I just say that one up front? <laughs> there seems to be a special sense in which animal life is, and, and our life is connected with, with blood and with breath, which, which plants don't have, obviously. Uh, in other words, I think we can assume that, that plants decayed and died before sin entered the world. I don't think we should get hung up on that. But you can see why it is that we describe plants and trees and the things in our garden as being living and as, as dying. Yeah, you know, like on a student's windowsill. I mean, take the humble apple, for example. Here we go. Here's an apple from my house. You've got another one there on the screen. The apple. Now, we've probably all got some of these at home, yes? Okay? If for no other reason than to keep the doctor away or, or something like that. Oh, I've got to be careful there. <laughs> this apple, the apple here, the apples in your bowl, they are dead. You ever thought about that? It's a really interesting thought, isn't it? They're dead. And, and, and this apple came from a bowl full of dead fruit. I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't want it to be alive, to be honest. It came from dead fruit. It's no longer growing. There's no change, really positive change, going on in it because it's been detached from its life source. It's no longer on the tree. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, you, you, grow, you grow apples in your garden and you can still, in our, our apple tree, we can still have apples that look pretty good and they're going quite well in like almost November uh, because they're still attached to the tree. If we pick them months earlier, I mean, as soon as they fall to the ground, they just turn to mush, don't they? See, the funny thing is that this apple looks alive in that it looks healthy, doesn't it? It looks good. But the only thing standing between this apple and a pile of mushy goo, its, its collapsed sort of state, is time. It's just time. That's all that stands between that. It's dead. And it's a bit like mankind, us. So in the garden, Adam and Eve, if you follow me with this illustration, they're still plugged into the source of life in the garden. There's no reason why they could not feed on the tree of life and live forever with God in that garden paradise. But the consequence of their rebellion, what is it? Is that they're cast out of the garden, away from the tree. It's explicitly said, isn't it? away from the source of life. They were unplugged, as it were, plucked from the life-giving presence of being with God. That's the tragedy of the fall. And like that apple, like us, Adam and Eve and those, you know, living in their years, they still looked fine, 
Nothing looked like it had changed. I mean, they're just in a different place, but they kind of look the same, I suspect. But as we started to see last week with the line of their first son, Cain, as we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, the rot is starting to set in, do you see? They're rotting. Humanity seems to be starting to collapse in on itself as sin takes hold and death enters and corrupts everything. And that's the world that we live in. It's a world where every one of us is born destined for the grave. That's the direction of travel. And it's unavoidable, isn't it? So probably the first new feature of chapter 5, and I hope you noticed it when it was being read to you, the first thing you should notice when you read through it is this repeated refrain. Did you notice it? And then he died, and then he died, and then we get distracted by how long they lived, but there's always this sort of end bracket, and then he died. It becomes the rhythm of this fallen world that we live in. So what we've got here in chapter 5 really is another genealogical record, like we did in the second half of chapter 4, if you look down. We've got basically another list of 10 names, the key patriarchal figures in this new line that was introduced to us, the line of Seth, those who lived in the line of Seth between Adam and Noah. Now, you remember, I hope, in the previous chapters, or in chapter 4, We were told about the line of Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, and the first murderer. His descendants follow his example in walking away from God, and you see them descending further and further into rebellion and violence and pride. That's what characterizes their line. And so the outlook for humanity is bleak, isn't it? Our direction of travel in chapter 4 through that line is this constant downward spiral, spiralling down the drain, as it were. Except that the chapter ended with a note of hope. Have a look at it. Eve gives birth to another son right at the end of chapter 4. A son in place of her beloved son Abel, who was murdered. And Eve names him Seth, and his line, we're told, starts out differently. There's something different about them. In the days of his son Enosh, we're told, in verse 26, look, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's what's different. The line of Cain, you see, is moving away from God, do you remember? But the line of Seth is moving towards God. They're coming towards God, calling on him. It reassures the reader lest we lose all hope that actually the purposes of God are still on track somehow. Still still things are going the right way. Uh, But despite a move in the right direction, you still have this broken world in chapter 5. You know, chapter 5 is not a fixed solution, is it? Things haven't been put right. It's a broken world. And so even in this new and improved line of Seth, you're marked by, look at verse 29 in chapter 5, painful toil. Still, The curse is still there. It's painful toil. And it's sin. And it's death. It's death. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Why is that? Well, have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. 
And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Verses 1 and 2, they should sound familiar to you. They're basically a repeat, in in very, very brief terms, of the account of the creation of mankind from chapter 1. You see that? We're reminded that we are made in the image and in the likeness of God, male and female alike. It's just a recap, isn't it? And that God has blessed them. So the whole formula is there. And if you want to see the blessing of increasing and multiplying, that's the rest of the chapter. You see? A whole genealogy of increase and multiply. So it it is basically a reflection of what we see in chapter 1. So far, so good. But verse 3, do you see, adds an important detail. Have a look at it. You see, when Adam produces an offspring, that offspring is in his own likeness. In his own image. It's emphasized, isn't it? In his own likeness, in his own image. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it strikes me. What is being emphasized here is that Adam is passing something on. Something's happened, and something's being passed down from Adam. <clears throat> now, I will always remember one of the, the scallies that I had in a DT class at, at, a, at a school I taught in. Um, we had, uh, I was working in a school in Liverpool, and we'd taken over a school that had failed just down the road. And as it was closing down, I had to sort of hop in my car and go and teach these lessons. And uh, I always remember this little chap. His, he was one of the scallies in that class. And his name was Macca. Everyone just called him Macca. And Macca had worked out a scam that he hoped would make him rich. He had used the computers in the lab to scan a five, uh, you know, got an old five-pound note, and he'd scanned in this five-pound note, and he had printed himself some copies, okay? Good old Macca. Now, needless to say, they were not convincing, these forgeries. <laughs> I mean, they were bad. I mean, the ink was running out on the printer and everything. The print was grainy, the color was off, and he had achieved a double-sided effect using sellotape, okay? So, you know, there's no pretense here. <laughs> The trouble with copying, even with the best equipment, is that every fault is picked up and transferred on to the next generation. You see? It's transferred to the duplicate. Adam's made in the image of God. And that was the image that was passed on to his progeny. Please don't mishear me here. His progeny were also, they carried the image of God. Except that that image had been warped and distorted by sin. And so this is what we're seeing here. The consequences of that first sin of Adam, his rebellion, had spread into every generation that followed. That's why we keep hearing the phrase, and then he died. A dying Adam produced dying children. Yet despite all of the death, okay, and I'm not going to take you through step by step through all of these characters and that they died, that they died, which is really all you know is how long they lived, how many children they had, and that they died. Despite all of that, you see here a line of descent that's, that's not actually marked particularly by a decline into sin, but by a turning to God. Not a turning from God, a turning to God. So as with the previous genealogy, the reason I make this point is we noted, didn't we, that in a list of ten names here, 
Number seven presents us with a character that sums up where this family's going, right? The characteristics, the direction of the family line. So in chapter four, if you just glance across again, remember it was Lamech, this man Lamech. There's two Lamechs. The Lamech in chapter four, he's the one who boasts about his murderous conquests. If you missed it, he summed up in chapter four, Verses 23 to 24, take a look at it. Lamech said to his wives, this is what characterizes the family. This is the family business. Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. I mean, it is like one of those pre-match sort of boasting bouts that boxers do, isn't it? That's what he's like. But here we see a very different character in number seven when we get to chapter five. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Enoch, have a look at him. His story is told in verse 21. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at his remarkable account. Have a look, verse 21. It's just a couple of verses. When Enoch had lived 65 years... He became the father of Methuselah. And after he became father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. I mean, it's so intriguing, isn't it? Three things you need to know about Enoch, and, and every time I've ever heard anyone preach on this, it's basically the same three points. So we're going to use their headings. You can't really improve on them. He walked with God. He witnessed for God. He went to God. That's, all, that's what you need to know about Enoch. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So first of all, he walked with God. Let's look at Enoch. Because in a chapter that is full of death, here is one man who didn't. Who didn't. Here is a character who escaped death. How on earth could he do that? He did it, says the author, by walking with God. That's how he escaped death. By walking with God. What does that mean? We're told it twice, actually, here. Now, obviously, it, it implies a special relationship with God. It implies a friendship. Somehow, this man became friends with God. And he walked with God for at least 300 years, we're told here. You know, if you assume he was converted when he was 65, you know, after the birth of his son, he starts walking with God. I mean, 300 years to walk with someone. That is not something you do unless you delight in the one that you're walking with. I mean, there are some people in here who have, you know, walked with their spouse, what, 60 years, some of you? I think there's some a little bit more than 60 years. That is wonderful. You don't do that with someone that you absolutely despise, do you? <laughs> now, this is someone he delights in. 300 years he delights to walk with his Lord. And the very expression there, to walk, takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And there you see that God is described as walking in the cool of the day, by which we gather that that was his custom with Adam and Eve before the fall, every day, a walk with them. And that term walked there, that's used of Enoch uh, and also used of God in the garden, 
is a particular form in the Hebrew that basically implies a habit. It's habitual. It's what he does every day. This was Enoch's habit. He walked with God. Every day he walked with God. Now, I don't think we're to assume here that God had taken on some kind of a physical form. I think there's good reason to believe that God hadn't taken on any kind of physical form here. And yet it seems that Enoch not only called on the name of God, but also came to know by faith the God whose name he called on. Only two characters actually in the Bible are described with that phrase, to walk with God. Enoch, who's described that way twice, and then in the next chapter, Noah. And one thing characterizes both of their lives. What do you think it is? It's faith. It's faith. I mean, they are great examples of faith. I can't actually think of a better example of faith than Noah, can you? Imagine the faith that it takes to spend years hand-building a massive wooden boat on land, thinking that, you know, at some point water's going to come. I mean, that takes some faith, doesn't it? Everyday faith. Get up, pull the curtains in your front garden, there it is, the project, yeah? That takes faith. And so the first thing, then, that it takes to walk with God is faith. It's faith. You want to be like Enoch? Enoch was a man of faith. Listen to what the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says about Enoch. We'll put it up on the screen. It's in Hebrews 11. Where in verse 5 it says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found, because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Some important verses there. At, what they're saying is that at the most basic level then, faith means that we believe God exists. Okay, that's very basic. But faith immediately, it seems, goes beyond that to this trust, this confidence that not only does God exist, but he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, that earnestly seeking God, you know, really seeking God is never a vain activity. It's never an empty activity. It never comes up empty if you seek God. So what is this reward that it comes up with if you seek God? It seems to me that the Bible it constantly takes this line. That the reward for earnestly seeking God is that God allows himself to be found by you. The reward for seeking God is God himself. He gives himself to you. Listen to the words of God's promise to his wayward people through the prophet Jeremiah. People have been brought to their lowest point at this point with Jeremiah. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, says God. Or to use the illustration that Jesus gave, he himself 
is the pearl of great price. That once you find it, once you find that pearl, and once you understand what it is that you have found, when you find that pearl, you'll gladly give up everything to have it. Nothing else matters. To walk with God by faith, well, that means to trust him, to treasure him, to know that if you have him, then you actually have all that ultimately matters. That is to walk with God. That's what Enoch had. The second thing, to walk with God also means to walk in obedience. To walk in obedience. The prophet Amos makes this point really clearly. He says this, listen. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Can two walk together unless they are agreed? To walk with God means to go God's way. You're not leading God your way, you're walking his way. Think about the world that Enoch lived in. We got a glimpse of it, didn't we, last time we were in Genesis 4. It's a wicked world. It's a world destined for destruction. And it's getting worse with every generation. It's a world like our own, in other words. It's a world where all kinds of voices are preaching to us to go their way all the time. Loads of voices in competition with God saying, go our way. Do what we're doing. Think what we're thinking. Say what we're saying. But the psalmist tells us this. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way, uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on his, his law day and night. To walk with God means that his word, his word trumps every other word. Every other word out there. This is the one that I'm listening to. This is the one that I'm obeying. This is what I want to do. A and, you know, there's what I want to do in my heart. There's what other people want me to do. But then there's this. And this is the way that I am going. I bow to this. Because it is in God that I have put my trust. It is him that I am walking with. So to walk with God means faith. And to walk with God means obedience. To go his way. The third thing. To walk with God requires is, is holiness. Holiness. Holiness simply means, it's sort of a religious word, isn't it? It simply means to be set apart. To be separated from that which is not holy. To be separated from that which is, you know, in the Bible word, profane, defiled. Enoch, now Enoch lived in a wicked world full of wicked men. But he kept himself separate now, that doesn't mean that he became some kind of monk. That is a complete misunderstanding of holiness. He didn't. I'm certain. I know he didn't. He did not separate himself physically from the people that he lived amongst. He didn't do that. That's not what holiness requires. Holiness requires a different kind of being set apart. It requires the kind of set apart that is a set apart for a for a purpose. I'm, I am for a different purpose. That's what holiness means. 
can illustrate this. You know, growing up, we always had, a, and maybe you can relate to this, right? We had a sugar bowl in the kitchen, uh, which was used for adding sugar to hot drinks, right? It was a fairly nice bone china, obviously. And in this sugar bowl was a teaspoon like no other, right? It was ornate. It was made of sterling silver. And it was unlike the common spoons in the house. Okay? You wouldn't find that spoon just sitting in the drawer with the other teaspoons. Not going to happen. It was for a single use. It was for the dispensing of sugar right, from the bowl. It was not for stirring. It was not for getting wet, lest you receive, receive a, a sharp blow on the wrist from my mum. It was a holy spoon. Do you get the point? Enoch knew the purpose for which he must be set apart. To reflect a truer image of God in the world that he lived in. And Enoch walked in a way that kept him from defilement. He knew with whom he walked. He was walking with him, obeying him, trusting him. And if you love God, if you delight in God, then you detest, you hate sin. You might be in the world. You might engage with the world around you. You might love them and laugh with them and cry with them, but you will not be like them. You will not follow them into their sin. To walk with God is, is to trust and to obey and to grow to be like him. That's holiness. Set apart for a purpose, to be his, to witness to him. How are you doing with that? Okay, That's Enoch. That's what Enoch's walk looks like. How are you doing with that? Are you walking with God? He stands as, you know, as a, as, a, as a testimony to us of what it looks like. Let me show you a second thing about him. We'll go a bit quicker. The second W, he witnessed for God. Now, why do I say that? Because, and this I find absolutely fascinating. This is phenomenal, actually. We actually have a record of what Enoch preached to the wicked world he lived in. Do you know that? We've, got a, we've actually got a record of, of one of his prophecies. It's in the book of Jude. I'll pop it up on the screen there. Jude, verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Okay, talking about the wicked generation that he lived in, which is like ours. See, says Enoch, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So first off, I'm going to say this before we get into looking actually at what Enoch is saying here. It would have been a pretty hollow message, that message. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's pretty blunt. But it would have been pretty hollow if Enoch was not already living a holy life of obedient faith. Enoch's life and Enoch's message had to line up. So what is his message? He's warning people that the Lord is coming. He's warning people that God is coming. That he is coming with irresistible force. And when he comes, everyone will be judged. 
That's Enoch's message. Fascinating, isn't it? Exactly the same message that we're called to preach. Every ungodly act, says Enoch, every harsh word, every word spoken against God, every sin in word or deed, he says, yes, every person will be called to account because of these things. That's what Enoch's warning his generation about. He doesn't mess about, does he? He preached and he prophesied to his generation with the aim of convicting them about their sin. That's what Jude tells us there, isn't it, in the quote? To convict them. Now, why does he do that? Well, surely he does not do that because, you know, he delights in showing people how wicked they are and in contrast, perhaps, just how good he is. No, surely he preaches this because like God himself, his desire is to see people turning from their sin, to see people calling on the name of the Lord like he had and receiving God's mercy as he did. Now listen, there's a sobering message for us here. The church, so you and I, we need to call our generation out on their sin and on their rebellion against God, just like Enoch did. That, that is what we're here to do. If the church becomes so frightened of offending people that we never say a hard word to them, that we never expose what they're doing as wrong, or if we lose the ability to differentiate be between what is and is not sin, then we will fail the very people God has sent us to call. That's a dreadful thing. Enoch witnessed for God. And you can be sure that he was not thanked for it, just as we're not thanked for it. You can be sure that he suffered. Because later, Paul assures Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life, like Enoch, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Whilst evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is what it means to witness for God. But it didn't deter him. Enoch continued to walk with God until one day, at apparently the still young age of 365, verse 24, Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. So the third W, he went to God. Here is a man who walked with God, who witnessed for God. That's what his life was like. And the final thing we know about him is he went to God. Why did God take Enoch? Why did he take him? I mean, he's doing a pretty good job, isn't he? It's a very good question. This is not the normal way that we go. As far as I'm aware, only two people in the Bible ever escaped death in this way. It's just Enoch and the prophet Elijah. Two incredible miracles. You know, I've, I've heard people, perhaps you have as well, heard people wax lyrical. You know, there's the story of this little girl trying to explain the story of Enoch by saying, Enoch used to take long walks with God, and one day he walked so far with God that God had to say, it's too far to go back, come home with me. I mean, it's a very cute story, isn't it? But, but we, the truth is we've no idea, we've no clear reason given for Enoch's sudden departure. It often surprises us, doesn't it, when God takes someone that you just think is he's doing such a good job. <laughs> Such a good person. Why did God take them? However, I'd like to just in closing propose 
three possibilities for why God took him. I think they're probably all a bit true. The first is to make sure that we know that God's plan is still on track, that all hope is not lost. Here is a world full of death. I mean, I wonder what kind of a shock it was when they saw the first person die, you know, dying of natural causes, just stopping living, their heart stopping beating. I wonder what they thought. I mean, curse that serpent. Because of his wiles, sin has entered the world and it has brought with it the sentence of death. And so far, it seems in the story that everything has played into the serpent's hands. The serpent can sit back and he can watch the collapse of mankind into sin and death. It's dreadful. Where is this promised one? The one who would finally defeat and crush the serpent. The one who would deliver us from death and from sin. Well, in Enoch, we see death is not unavoidable. There is an answer. It can be overcome. And that means, necessarily, there is a remedy for sin. There's a remedy for sin. The promises of God, his gracious dealing with mankind, his promise of rescue still stands. Because Enoch was taken away. Enoch escaped death. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think Enoch is taken away to show us what it is that God requires. How can we escape death? How can we please God? There's only one way, the life of Enoch tells us, and there's only ever been one way, and it is not by human effort. Enoch is not taken by God because he's impressed God or because he's lived some kind of a sinless life or, or that he's done so much good in those last 300 years that he offset the bad of the first 65. No, he pleased God the only way that it is possible to please God. And we've already seen it, haven't we? By faith. He trusted God. He committed the whole weight of his life, the whole weight of who he was, everything to God. And he found God to be his delight and to be his saviour. And it was all one way. It was all of the grace of God. God always has and God does still only require one thing from us. The same thing, that we put our trust completely in him. That we call on his name. That we bow before his majesty. Lay our sins before him, own our debt and receive his gracious salvation. That's the second thing, to show us what God requires. The third thing then is as a sign to his generation. Think about this. Enoch prophesied, we've got a copy of his prophecy there, for, for about 300 years probably, to the wicked world of his day, preaching. And he's preaching about, what's he preaching about? About things that can't be seen, that there is no, no evidence of. Where's your evidence, Enoch? Coming judgment, the future fate of sinners who will not turn to God for forgiveness. How sh why should anyone believe Enoch? You know, there's crazy Enoch again, standing in the town centre, and he's talking about his God, and he's telling us that we're sinners. And then one day he's gone. One day this family man, this godly man, gone, just gone, vanished without a trace. Hebrews 11 
verse 5, just remind you what it says. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found. Maybe people were looking for him, searching for him. He could not be found. Why? Because God had taken him away. Why should you believe Enoch? Because one day he could not be found. There was no trace of him. Enoch's missing body, his vacant tomb, declares a truth that will not be denied. Enoch has shown us the way. And in so doing, he points us straight to Jesus Christ, the one who died to remove from us the venom of sting, of sin that was killing us, and then rose from the grave and conquered death for us. And his tomb likewise is empty. Our world still groans under the curse, doesn't it? Sin has brought death to all of mankind. But listen to Peter. We'll close with his words. Another man who walked with God, he declares this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you.